right. Well, it's so good to be here. Um, thank you all for coming out. And um, I am excited to share tonight about my favorite subject. I talk about the Trinity all the time. I'm passionate about this doctrine. Um, and I'm especially passionate that Christians be able to see it in Scripture for themselves. As we'll talk about a little bit later on, the word Trinity is, of course, not in the Bible. Uh, we inherit the word Trinity and the fully assembled doctrine of the Trinity and the tradition of, of thinking in Trinitarian ways about the faith. We inherit that from our, from our forefathers, from the, the great Christian tradition, which has always confessed God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a lot of times if we're docile about that and think, I'm glad to be a Christian and to be in a long line of Christians who have confessed the, the triune God, we can often uh, read our Bibles on the one hand, but think about the Trinity on the other, and kind of know that the two go together, but not be able to see it for ourselves. So a lot of my passion as a theology teacher is to be able to show Christians how to find the doctrine for themselves in Scripture. Because like I said, you can't just flip to the concordance and um, go to the T section and look for the word Trinity. Spoiler alert, it's not in there, right? But the doctrine is definitely in there. So as Paul and I were talking about what kind of thing to do on my favorite subject, uh, the Trinity, for a uh, conference that's falling pretty close to Halloween slash Reformation Day, we thought, well, how about sola scriptura, scripture alone, as the source of why we believe what we believe about God? Because even though I'm glad to stand in a long tradition of Trinitarian Christians, I don't believe God is Trinity because of that tradition. Only God is qualified to inform us about God's identity. And if he hasn't done it in Scripture, then we don't have adequate reasons to believe it. So that's going to be the main thing that we look at tonight. If you, um, if you like advanced organizers and you want to know exactly where a talk is going, I will be taking us directly into John 1, Matthew 28, and Ephesians 2. But it's going to take a while to get there, because I want to establish sort of a big picture first, um, in two ways. First of all, I want to show you in advance why the Trinity matters, because I don't want to do the work of like demonstrating to you that the Trinity is scriptural, and then have the question arise, okay, I get it, it's in the Bible, but why does it matter? I actually want to flip that, and start with why it matters, and then move into how to see it in the pages of scripture. Um, the other thing I want to do is kind of establish the big picture, because we're going to camp out in those three passages that I told you, John 1, Matthew 28, Ephesians 2. You'll notice I'm skipping the Old Testament. Now, one of my best friends is an Old Testament scholar, and he doesn't call it the Old Testament. He calls it most of the Bible, yeah, which is a pretty good thing to call it. Um, and so I do want the doctrine of the, I'll show you why the doctrine of the Trinity is especially a New Testament revelation in its fullness and clarity but how it also draws on most of the Bible so that it's a full Bible doctrine. And um, Paul mentioned that I was an art student as an undergrad in college, and so I want to show you, um, let's see, are we advancing yet? I was going to show you a big picture. I have faith that soon, there it is. Um, here's a beautiful um, uh, uh, portable altar from Cologne, Germany. Uh, it was made in the, um, was it, what have I got the date on there? Yeah, 1160, so that's the 12th century. Um, this is made by an artist named Albertus from Cologne, and it's enamel work. So it's metal work, and it's got this baked-on enamel, and that's why a thousand years later, it is just as shiny as the day it was made. It's really like a little jewel box. Um, what I love about Albertus's image is uh, the top of it, 
he combines all of these images together. Now, he didn't write anything. All we have to go on from this guy named Albertus is, is what he um, painted and portrayed in enamel work. I'm going to show you how he combines images to bring things out of the Bible that you need to kind of put together in your mind. You need to get the big picture, is one metaphor I'm talking about, and you need to combine multiple truths that you understand. So on the left side, you'll see a crucifixion. On the right side, you'll see a resurrection. And the top and bottom are six each of the the 12 apostles. Yeah. So this is an apostle's creed, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ kind of an image. I'm going to zoom in here on the resurrection really briefly here, just to kind of get you used to how Albertus thinks about showing us the big picture. These are the three women coming to the tomb, and the angel is seated on the tomb, and the three soldiers are passed out in front of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a nice image. This is one way of portraying the resurrection of Christ, and that is by not showing Christ, right? I can show you that he rose from the dead. How? Because he's not there. The tomb is empty, yeah? Another way to show it, though, is here he is appearing to Mary Magdalene in the garden. So one way you can show the resurrection is you go to the tomb where a dead person's supposed to be, he's not there. But having died and risen again, he shows himself. He has these direct personal appearances in the flesh to a number of his followers, including Mary Magdalene here. Now, I'm not very good at Latin, but I think you can see running down the left margin there, it says Maria Magda. That's abbreviated. That's, that's how we know who that is. It's labeled. Crucially important, because artists can make a lot of beautiful pictures, but if they don't label them, sometimes we're left guessing exactly who they're showing. A third way to show the resurrection of Christ, though, is here is Christ ascending into heaven. Because if, um, Ephesians puts it this way. God, uh, God poured out his power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. I think we know there's 40 or 50 days in between those, but Paul just says he raised him from the dead and seated him in his own right hand. Um, so if you think about it, what Albertus is doing here as an artist is saying the resurrection is such a big thing. It's not just some guy got up. Like This is a life-changing, world-changing, major thing. And to understand it, you need to simultaneously think about three different ways of looking at it. On the one hand, the tomb is empty. On the other hand, the risen Christ appears personally to people that he knew. And on the other, other hand, he is at the right hand of God. So it's that kind of comfortable moving around with the fullness of biblical revelation that I think Albertus gives us. All that's, I could say a lot more about that if this were like an Easter Sunday thing, but I just want to actually get you primed with that and jump over to the other side where we have the crucifixion of Christ, Mary, his mother, and John the evangelist are at the foot of the cross because in John he says something to both of them. The sun and the moon are hiding their faces from this amazing cosmic event that's occurring, that's changing everything. Below the cross, in another scene, is someone rising up out of a sepulcher or tomb, and the blood of the redemption of Christ is flowing down to him. This is Adam. This is the first Adam being saved by the work of the second Adam, as Paul would say, yeah? And I know it's Adam because on the right there, you can see he's labeled Adam. Again, my Latin's not good, but I'm pretty sure that's Latin for Adam. Yeah. So, so there he is. Um, notice his arms are sort of spread out in a certain way. That sort of echoes the way Christ's arms are spread out on the cross. It's really a wonderful image of the effective power of the death and blood of Christ saving uh, humanity. And there he is, Adam himself. Once upon a time, Adam was 
humanity. Now, above that is a figure of God the Father uh, gesturing blessing and the dove of the Holy Spirit rising up, uh, sort of hovering between the Son and the Father. Now, you might think the Father looks exactly like Jesus, right? That's because this artist had a little bit of self-restraint. Like, on the one hand, he's making an image of God the Father, and if I were there, I would have told him, don't do that. I got like nine reasons why that's not going to go very well for you. Uh, but he did it, and, and he, instead of making up attributes for portraying the God the Father, he thought, when they asked Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus replied, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because the Son, incarnate, has made himself visible to us, and the Father has not become incarnate and has not made himself visible. But when he shows his love and his care and his saving work in the world, he shows the Son. And so this artist decided to make a Jesus-shaped God the Father. Art historians refer to this as a Christomorphic image of the Father, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus-shaped. Now here's the thing. The Son of God incarnate for us and our salvation on the cross, his Father who so loved the world he sent him to, to save us, above the cross, gesturing blessing, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the dove of the Holy Spirit maintaining the communion between them dynamically in the very act of salvation, that's the Trinity, right? That's the Trinity depicted visually right there in the middle of the things that make up our salvation. How do we know it's the Trinity? The label saves us here, yeah? Right there, running to either side of the dove of the Holy Spirit, Trinitas. That's Latin for Trinity, So what we've got here in this set of images um, for all the things that we could say are sort of um, wrong or misleading or dangerous about portraying any divine person in visual art like this, as a teaching aid, it accomplishes something that's really close to my heart. It shows you the gospel itself, the death of Christ for us and our salvation, and that the background of that gospel is the triune God. You see that the Father, Son, and Spirit involved in salvation is the clearest manifestation of God who eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. You can, you can see them working out salvation in some other ways that we'll get into more detail about. But this fact that the Trinity and the gospel go together is the real big picture. Um, and, and I'll try to make this point five or six times in case you miss it one or the other three or four times, right? Um, if we can get to where we associate the Trinity, the triunity of God, with the gospel of our salvation then these things are going to mutually inform each other. If I can, if I can um, get inside your powers of association, and when I say Trinity, instead of thinking, I don't know, is that kind of like a three-leaf clover? Or is that like water, ice, and steam? Or is that like a math puzzle? Or what is that? Instead of associating with something like that, if you think, oh, he said Trinity, he must be talking about the gospel. If I can do that, then I will have accomplished something really great this weekend. Yeah. Similarly, once those powers of association are working, you know to think Trinity and simultaneously think gospel. From now on, whenever you think about the gospel, you will immediately call to mind the greatness of the eternal God as Father, Son, and Spirit. That'll all kind of be there working together. Now, I promised you to do the big picture of um, the Trinity in Scripture, and I want to show you the way the Old Testament sets up the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, in the middle of uh, the main thing that happens in the Bible, here's a really short plot summary for you. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit to save us. That's like, I, I left a lot of stuff out, obviously. 
a lot of kings of Israel and Judah and that kind of stuff, but that's basically what happens. Once upon a time, uh, there was a thing called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's about 120 years ago. James Orr of Scotland edited it. And it's a multi-volume. It's like four or five volumes, entries, major entries by reputable scholars on all the topics in the Bible. And he decided he wanted an entry in this Bible encyclopedia on the Trinity. So he went to B.B. Warfield of Princeton Seminary and said, Warfield, give us a Trinity essay. You've got like 10 or 12 pages to do it. We want the Trinity entry in the Bible encyclopedia. And Warfield said yes, and then he started his essay this way. He said, if we're careful in the way we use words, the doctrine of the Trinity is not properly speaking revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, It is not yet revealed in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is looking forward to a time when the Father will send the Son, and the Father and the Son will send to the Spirit. So the Old Testament is like too early for the full revelation of the Trinity, because it's always looking forward to the time when the Father sends the Son and Spirit. That's fair enough, right? We can talk about interesting things happening with the triune God's presence in the Old Testament, but Warfield's eye is on that, boy, when the Incarnation and Pentecost happen, that's when it's all made known. But then he gets to the New Testament and says, and if we're going to be careful with our language, we also need to admit the Trinity is not properly revealed in the New Testament so much as everyone writing the New Testament has already met the incarnate Son and the outpoured Spirit, and then in the power of the Spirit, they are writing inspired scripture about that event that happened. So Warfield says, the actual revelation of the Trinity didn't happen for the first time in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, but it happened, as he says, between the Testaments right? Um, Not in words, but in person and in history. Now, I think this is a really bold move, and I think you have to be B.B. Warfield to do it, right? To get hired to write an essay for the Bible Encyclopedia about the Trinity and say, okay, it's, it's not revealed in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's on that middle page. I've only got one page between the Testaments in my Bible, right? Uh, between Malachi and Matthew. But that's not what Warfield's talking about. Remember, he's talking about, there's some really good news here, The Trinity is not an abstract set of claims about God that God made known by saying words about it. The Trinity is the plan of salvation in which the eternal God, who would have been Trinity if there had never been a plan of salvation, right, but made himself known as who he is by the Father sending the Son in person, in history, right? The one who was prophesied about and who then the apostles talked about what he had done and proclaimed what he had done. Sending the Son and sending the Spirit. Just as a brief aside, this is a big difference between Christianity as a religion, as a religion committed to a book, but the book is not the central thing, right? We don't say the central event in salvation history is the coming of the book. Um, Mormonism, Islam, some other religions, they do think that the coming of the book is the central event in salvation history. Christians are good at following the word of God in a book, but we're committed to the main thing being the coming of a person, the Son of God incarnate, the Holy Spirit poured out on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Okay, well, um, so the Old Testament, Messiah and Spirit are coming. New Testament, Messiah and Spirit already came. Here's my idea of how to draw the self-manifestation of God in the Old Testament. It's like a bright blur. This is how I try to do justice to it all, best I can, given the PowerPoint tools available to me. Um, God is great, 
and God makes himself known uh, by revealing his face, by revealing his name, by giving his law, by showing his hand, by acting with wisdom, glory. There's the word, there's the spirit. All of these are sort of poetic ways of God talking about his presence or his actions toward his people. When God talks about being who he is for his people or doing something in which he makes himself known, he doesn't just say, I did that. He'll occasionally talk that directly, say, in Isaiah. There are a few passages of Scripture where it's just like God speaks in the first person like that. But have you noticed in the Old Testament that what he usually does is use one of these phrases like, um, I will, I will uh, show my arm to them, or I will lead them out with a mighty hand, um, or I will turn my face upon them. This is an unusual way of talking. Now, partly it's poetic and beautiful and majestic, So that if I were to come in here and say, um, thank you for coming into my presence. I will now turn my face upon you. You would think, that's a weird guy. Like, I don't know who he thinks he is, but that is a strange way of talking. Though you did come into my presence and I did turn my face upon you, just as I am in your presence and you are turning your faces upon me. Um, Nevertheless, to talk that way sounds overly exalted and also too complex. But God constantly talks that way in the Old Testament so that there's something going on where when God is with his people, it's both the face of God and God. Do you get that? What's the difference between God and the face of God? Well, the face is not a part of God. It's a, it's a deep, poetic way of talking about God being with them. And God consistently talks this way in the Old Testament. It's a little bit of a mystery. It's a little bit of a puzzle in the Old Testament. Even when things matter a lot, like my favorite example of this is when Moses is called to go up against the chief leader of the major superpower in the world, Pharaoh, and he's going to challenge him, and he's commissioned to do this, and Moses says to God, I will not go if you don't go with me. And God replies, I will send my messenger and put my name in him. And if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, was that a yes or a no? <laughs> like, this really matters. Are you going with me or not? And God says, yeah, I'm sending my messenger and putting my name in him. Is the name of God God? It is, but it's also of God. So there's some kind of, it is God, and simultaneously, it's of God. And you could say this with all of these divine um, attributes or images, the face of God, the wisdom of God, the spirit of God. In fact, if you were just looking at the Old Testament and you were picking each one of these things, you might end up saying there's something like 17 persons in God, which would be nonsense. If each of them sort of is God, but is something from God. But here's the great news. We're never just rooting around in scattered texts in the Old Testament trying to figure out if the hand of God is somebody or if the face of God is somebody. We are always looking back from the accomplished revelation in the New Testament and saying... uh, In the fullness of time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So now we can look back at the Old Testament and say, every time God says that he will send forth his word to save us, that was somebody, right? And we met the Holy Spirit in his outpouring on the basis of the finished work of Christ at Pentecost. So every time we see that, we can say, oh, in the Old Testament, all these references to the spirit of God, turns out that was somebody. Um, So that we're doing a retrospective project of identifying a person that we already met. You see how concrete that is? Instead of just reading through some verses and saying like, 
I wonder if the law of God is somebody. Sometimes, sometimes it seems like somebody. Instead, we're saying, no, we're only looking for two somebodies sent by another somebody, right? We know, that the, we know from the gospel story, the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. Or you could say the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. And same same uh, result, eventually. But what we're doing is retrospectively looking back on the Old Testament to identify the ones who have shown up for our salvation in the new. Again, to quote B.B. Warfield, he described the Old Testament as a room richly furnished but dimly lit. I like that image, yeah? Richly furnished but dimly lit. Sounds like a dangerous place to walk in the dark, yeah? All the furniture's there, but the lights aren't on. And we could say that about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Uh, The elements of Trinitarian theology are there, but we need to borrow New Testament light in order to see them for what they are, right? We're not just looking to see which of these divine attributes turns out to be concretely a person. We know we go there looking for Jesus and the Spirit in their pre, uh, in their, in their old covenant ways of manifesting themselves. Okay. Much more could be said, but I'm just trying to do justice to most of the Bible on my way to these three major texts in the New Testament. As you think through this, uh, sort of, Looking back into the Old Testament retrospectively, everything kind of settles down into a Father, Son, Spirit kind of a triad, and that's where we get the doctrine of the Trinity. So by the time the New Testament comes along and says it in so many words, we're primed for it. We go, yes, that is, this is a weird thing to say about the New Testament, that is the right way to read and interpret the Old Testament. That's why we believe in a canon of Scripture, that this is one book, it's not just a chance collection of 66 books that have some things in common. It's actually the unified self-revelation of God in salvation history. Okay, Um, just a little visual aid here to help you picture it. I got these books from a German kid's Bible. Uh, On the left is just sort of an image of uh, the events of Passion Week, so the the central work of Jesus Christ. And on the right is Pentecost with the largest tongues of flame I have ever seen. Yeah, terrifying. Um, These two uh, missions or sendings into salvation history are the crucial events for communicating to us who God eternally is as Father, Son, and Spirit. Christ and the Spirit sent by the Father. Uh, I'm going to zip on to... One more way I want to talk about... um, uh, My visual aid here is like, if you're reading forward from the Old Testament, you would expect one thing. If you're reading backward through the New Testament into the Old, you can see more things, yeah? So here's an example. If you read the Old Testament, you think, well, the Messiah is going to come. That is the Messianic anointed son of David. This is who we are expecting as we read through the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. But also we know the suffering servant is going to come. Think about Isaiah 53, the servant of God who will... uh, be exalted and do well, but who will be stricken for the sins of many. So somehow God's going to solve the problem of sin and alienation by sending the Messiah, who's going to rule as the new David, who's better than David, but also the suffering servant. So we're looking for two, right? Well, no, because also God promises that he, the Lord himself, that Yahweh, the Lord, will come to his temple. But also Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me and you should listen to him. And Moses is greater than all the prophets, but there's going to be a prophet like him that comes. Um, But also, we're looking for, according to Joel 2, the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. 
you could look through the Old Testament looking forward and expect seven or eight or nine guys to show up to bring about salvation, right? You could say, well, there's going to be the Messiah, there's going to be the suffering servant, there's going to be the Spirit, there's going to be the Lord himself. But what happens is Jesus turns out, whoops, he shows up in the power of the Spirit, and you realize, oh, what looked like expectation fanning out into a lot of directions was somehow all always converging on this one great work of God, wherein the Father sent the Spirit-anointed Messiah. You see, I'm sneaking all three persons of the Trinity in there. I could make it simpler and just say Jesus came, and that is also true. But Jesus came from the Father and the power of the Spirit in order to pour out the Spirit on the basis of his finished work. So it's this tight Trinitarian bundle in which all of our expectations from the Old Testament are met. God keeps his promise. I want to say he like overkeeps his promise. You know, he hyperkeeps his promise. He, he not just fulfills all the things that he had led us to expect, but he fulfills them in a tightly bundled way so that they all come true together in person. Okay, um, I never quite feel like I've done full justice to the Old Testament, but I need to move on. Anyone recognize these guys? It's the two good spies returning from the promised land. Um, You know, 12 spies went, 10 of them came back and said, I don't care what God said about the land. He's not, that's not a good place. You know, there are people there look, we look like grasshoppers to them. But two good spies came back and said, no, it's awesome. Check out these grapes. Took two of us to carry them. Um, So this image has always been used. Oh, by the way, the artist took some liberties here. It says the cluster of grapes was so big it took two men to carry it. It doesn't say the grapes were as big as pumpkins, right? So as far as I know, I mean, I wasn't there, but as far as I know, it was normal-sized grapes, just a lot of them on a cluster. This image has always been used as a way of representing the continuity of Old and New Covenant. The people of God in the Old Covenant and the people of God in the New Covenant are under the one blessing of the promise-making, promise-keeping God. Right? There's the, the substance of the covenant is the same across the entire surface of Scripture for all of God's people. But there's also a difference, right? And, and the difference is that the one who goes first has to make his way through life by faith without seeing the fulfillment of the promise. He goes along first, and then the promise comes along behind him. You see, like the, like the lead man on the cluster of grapes, right? I'm just walking by faith, and I know the promise will come along behind me. Then it comes along behind him, and the guy on the back end of the pole actually gets to proceed through life by faith, but with the fulfillment of it in front of him. And this artist went the little extra step and said, plus, you can snack along the way. So it is relatively better to be a believer in God's promises in the new covenant than in the old covenant, even though the substance of the blessing is the same. You see that? It's, uh, and if you're, if you're into this kind of biblical theology move, you can think there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity. Something that you can do that little dance with yourself, yeah? Um, something like that's going on with the Trinity. The Trinity is a whole Bible doctrine, but it's clearer in the New Testament. But it's always been the same God. The God of the entire Bible has always been Father, Son, and Spirit. He's just made it a lot clearer so that we who walk by faith in the Trinity and the New Covenant do so after the full revelation of it. Okay, much more could be said, but I promise to get to the three key texts for the Trinity. So I want to start start with John 1. John 1, um, the first three verses, says, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, um, this is an amazing opening for a gospel. Uh, In one sense, you could think of the four gospels as having a friendly competition with each other in answering the question, if you want to tell the story of Jesus with its meaning and its significance, so you're not just running a video camera, but you're trying to tell this story so that the meaning of the story is clear, how far back do you have to start? So you can picture this, right? Mark comes along and says, well, you can't just say once upon a time Jesus started happening. You have to say, like, um, John the Baptist came first. In fact, John the Baptist was prophesied in Isaiah. So the beginning of the Gospel of Mark says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight a path. You know, I send forth my messenger before your face. So Mark's answer is, if you want to get the Jesus story right, you better start with Isaiah. Matthew comes along and says, Actually, Isaiah, that's late in the Old Testament. You're going to have to go back behind that. Let's do a genealogy and trace this back through David all the way to Abraham, right? And, and so that's, that's further back. That's what Genesis 12, that gets you pretty far back. Luke comes along and says, I like the genealogy. I like the Genesis. But let's go further with the genealogy and take this all the way to Adam, right? Jesus is the son of dot, 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 Adam, who was from God. John then comes along and says, I've got a bigger idea. If you really want to put this in context, Isaiah is not far enough back. Genesis 12 is not far enough back. Genesis 2, creation of Adam and Eve, is not far enough back. You actually have to go back before Genesis. What I mean is, in the beginning, God created. It's already too late. The one who became incarnate as Jesus Christ was already there before God created. So he starts the way Genesis starts. In the beginning, but then he fills in details. In the beginning was the word. Was the word. Think about it this way. If God says, let there be, and there was, he said it with a word. So he must have already had a word, right? Before he said the word, he must have had the word. That's what John's doing. Something like that. What was already there at Genesis 1. That's why John says, um, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then finally, verse 3, all things were made through him. John gives you two bonus verses before the beginning of Genesis 1 and tells you already Jesus was there. Now, if you're putting Jesus all the way back that far, the Son of God who becomes incarnate and takes the name Jesus Christ, you're kind of out of places to put him because you're before the world. So the only place to put this Word of God is is in God. And that's where John puts him. Now, um, the word, it doesn't say already, but it means already, right? Because uh, all this stuff is already happening in the first two verses. The other thing I want to draw your attention to, the word was with God and the word was God. That is to say, this word was with God, and that means that there's a relation between them. And if there's a relation, there must be a distinction if the word's going to be with God. You see that? There's witness between the Word and God. And yet it goes on to say, the Word was God. So there's, if I can use language this way, there's wasness between the Word and God. You see that? Um, I'm Fred. My dad was Fred. My son is Fred. My website's fredfredfred.com. More Fred than you could ever want. Um, if I had my son here with me, I could say, look, Fred is with Fred. And you'd say, yeah, that's cute the way you do that. 
Um, but if I squeezed him in and said, and Fred is Fred, you'd say, oh, that's not healthy. Like, that is, that is not good parenting. You've got to leave him some space. And I said, okay, okay, well, let's, let's get him aside, and let's just start with this way. Fred is Fred. But if I then went on to say, and Fred is with Fred, you'd think, also kind of abnormal psychology, right? Like, also not healthy to kind of distinguish yourself from yourself in that way. See, for me as a creature, I have wasness. I am who I am, um, but I don't have withness. Or if I do have withness, it's with somebody else who's not me. Somehow in God, both are going on. You see that? Somehow the word was with God and was God. Somehow you have the unity or identity of the word with God and also the relation or distinction. Now, I'll just kind of sneak in here. The very top part of the traditional diagram we see of um, God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son. You've probably seen that diagram. It's called the Shield of the Trinity. For some reason, there's a great Wikipedia page on it. I have no idea why. I'm not in the habit of recommending Wikipedia theology, uh, but last time I checked, this was a good web page. Um, so you see that there's the uh, relation and distinction between the Word and God, because they're distinct. What we have to say something like persons, yeah? They're not each other, and yet they're both God. So there's identity uh, between the Word and God, and we'd have to say something like that's the divine essence. Well, let me move on to Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty. We looked at the beginning of a gospel. I want to look at what kind of seems like the surprise ending of a gospel. Matthew is a long gospel, 28 chapters. You get to the end, and the risen Lord says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, now notice here that you're, we're to baptize disciples in the name of the Father, that's one, and the Son, that's two, and the Holy Spirit, that's three. Now, I already said that when someone asked me if the Trinity is in the Bible, I say the word is clearly not in the Bible. The doctrine is, and I would love to show you that. But there's a certain sense in which threeness is in the Bible with reference to God. You know what I mean? It's right here. The, baptize them in the name, the one name of who? Well, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. When I'm feeling kind of feisty about this, what I want to ask is, am I allowed to count to three like, aren't there three somethings under that name of God in the baptismal command and the Great Commission? There's some threeness there, right? Now, of course, we need to go on and talk about what that threeness is, but I, I want to say, like, the whole idea of, of talking about God as Father, Son, and Spirit is right here in the words of Jesus, and the whole idea of treating that threeness, Father, Son, Spirit, one, two, three, as a revelation of the one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, it's right here in the baptismal command. Um, so the word threeness, what's the difference between three and threeness? Well, threeness is just a more abstract way of talking about the fact that three exists. You know what I mean? Am, am I holding up three fingers? Yes. Am I holding up threeness? Well, that's a weird way to talk, and it's slightly abstract. But yes, I suppose you are holding up threeness. When we count to three in the baptismal command and then say, there's threeness there, we're actually saying we're talking about the Trinity, because Trinity is just the Latin word for threeness. Does that, does that make sense? Threeness what? Threeness of persons within the eternal one God. Once upon a time, I got curious about the first occurrence of the word Trinity in English. 
I know the first occurrence of it in Greek is then the second century in Latin, also second century in North Africa from a guy named Tertullian. But English is a young language. So I thought, well, who first said that? And I found the first occurrence of the word Trinity uh, in some Anglo-Saxon uh, church texts. And there it is. Can you see it? It's a, there's a, there's a, a letter we don't use anymore. It looks like a little ha- a happy man in a wheelchair dancing or something, right? It's called a thorn. It's pronounced the. You see the word here, the Anglo-Saxon first use of the word trinity in English is threnis. And as soon as you say it, you're kind of disappointed, like, no, I wanted the word trinity, not threeness. Threeness sounds dumb. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what the word means. Threeness. This is literally the word trinity, but in English. We're just used to it in Latin. Trinitas, which we pretend is an English word, trinity, yeah? It basically means threeness. Threeness of person in the one name or essence of God. That's what we're talking about. Um, You could think about the doctrine of the Trinity as admitting that if you ask God, what is God? The answer is one being. But who is God? The answer has to be Father and Son and Spirit. So it sounds a lot more intelligent and informed to say God is one being in three persons. But if you like using one-syllable words, you could say God is one what in three whos. Yeah? Um, triunity, by the way, is a special word we made up specifically to describe the unique thing that is God. Three in one. Triunity. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to skip that just in the interest of time and give you the last key passage from the New Testament for the doctrine of the Trinity. Ephesians 2.18. This is in the middle of a long sentence by Paul, so I'm going to be rude and interrupt him just to get the one little part I want to talk about. Otherwise, we'd be here a lot longer because it's a long, wonderful sentence. Paul says, through him, that is Christ, we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, it's, it's a little harder to count to three here than it was in Matthew 28, uh, where it said the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But you definitely can count to three. Through him, Christ the Son incarnate, we both... Uh, these alienated people groups who couldn't get along with each other but had to be reconciled through divine action, have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's been talking here in Ephesians 2 about how Jew and Gentile are alienated from each other and just can't find unity. But he says, the thing is, as Christians, we have to have unity because we're all going to the same place. We're all going for access to the Father. And this word access is a beautiful biblical word for worship of something, of someone who's truly majestic. Something truly majestic, you can't just barge in and say, hi, I'm here to worship you. Make some room, right? No, you have to be invited. There has to be access. There has to be a way made. And so he's saying, we have access to the Father. Jews, Jewish believers in Christ have access to the Father. Um, Gentile believers in Christ have access to the Father. We are going to be together and unified because we're going to the Father. Said Flannery O'Connor said, everything that rises must converge. Everything that's going to the same high reality to enter into worship of the Father through the way that he has made will be joined up together. And that way is through Christ, and that way is in the Spirit. See how the modifying phrases here give you a Trinitarian experience of Christian worship. John Owen the Puritan called this passage, Ephesians 2.18, a directory of Christian worship because it kind of shows you how it happens. Um, It's also got this wonderful structure to it where our our goal as the Father, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity, we're we're going to God the Father, we are worshiping God, 
How do you get to God to worship him? Only through the way that God has made, that is the Son. We go there through the Son, so it's like Jesus is the bridge to the worship of God the Father. Now he's a fully divine bridge. He's like God become flesh for us to make a way for us. But in addition to being the one we worship, the Son is the way to the Father who we worship. And you might think, if I'm getting there through the Son, and my goal is the Father, where is the Spirit? Why don't I have clear ideas about the Spirit? Um, And Lewis says, well, because it's in the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2.18. It's in one Spirit. So if if the goal is the Father, the way is the Son, the Spirit's sort of like the motive power behind you, or the motivation within you, or the drive to be able to get up and cross that bridge and get to the Father. So to the Father, um, uh, through the Son, in the Spirit. Let me, let me just tie this together really quickly. Um, it's because the Father sent the Son who sent the Spirit. Notice that, that um, from the Father through the Son in the Spirit is the, God's way to us. From the Father through the Son in the Spirit. It's also our way back to God, right? In the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Like That's the whole picture. What I love about this passage is it's not just that we worship the Trinity, it's that we worship Trinitarianly, right? It's not just that we have fellowship with God who happens to be, interestingly, Trinitarian. It's that we have Trinitarian access to that God. We, we worship not just the Trinity, but Trinitarianly, yeah? I think that's what is really powerful about this passage. Um, salvation and worship and fellowship with God are by and from and in and with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that is the key thing uh, that I wanted to show you straight from Scripture, Matthew 28, John 1, Ephesians 2. Um, But just to give you some of the key words that the tradition has highlighted for us, by looking at these passages, we get the identity and distinction of the persons of the Trinity, the uh, co-eternity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the threeness of these persons, the sending that the Father sent the Son and the Spirit, um, and Primarily, what we get is the gospel, that God has made himself known to us in this way um, in the gospel. All right, there is a lot more I could say about that, but I want to leave time here for questions. I'll start with my question. Can we have a cookie and milk and then hear you do this all once more? (laughs) Because it's rich and deep and good. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, so we want to leave some time. Raise your hands. We've got a nice-sized group. I'll come around with the mic. Uh, say your first name and then ask your question. And we're getting this recorded, too. Uh, the hope is this will be posted on our website here early next week. So you can go back and listen to it. Just not with Fred, but we will get to re-listen. So say your name. Say your question. And we'll start with Adam. Hi, I'm Adam. Thank you, Dr. Sanders, for the presentation. Can you remind me where the sending is in those three uh, passages? Yes, uh, I, I skipped that for time. Um, Matthew 28, uh, Jesus says, All authorities are given me, go therefore into all the world, it's the Great Commission. So it's a sending passage. Um, the parallel that I skipped over is John 20 20, where the risen Jesus appears to the disciples, breathes on them, and says, As the Father sent me, so I send you, receive the Holy Spirit. One's the Great Commission, 
the other one's what some people call the Johannine Pentecost, or like the story of how the church got, the Spirit got into the church, according to the Gospel of John. They're both classic sending passages. Um, the word mission originally entered Christian theology as a way of talking about the Father sending, the Latin there is missio, missioning the Son and the Spirit into salvation history. We use the word mission to talk about what? Cross-cultural communication of the gospel. Um, the one builds on the other, right? Because the Great Commission, the sending of disciples out to make disciples, uh, is, is built on the sending forth of the Son and the Spirit. So, yeah, good call. I, I skipped that in the interest of time, but the word sending is still floating out there. Great Trinity texts turn out to be great sending texts and vice versa in Scripture. Hello, my name is Chris Allen. I was wondering, when you said the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, don't you mean the Holy Spirit also? I I absolutely mean the Holy Spirit. Yes, thank you. I am... Yeah, <laughs> um, for a long time, I, I, I actually kind of fixed this. I used to say the Spirit a lot more just in the interest of time. Um, but then I read a book where the author only ever referred to the third person of the Trinity as the Spirit. And it made me so mad that for about the next 10 years, I only ever called the Spirit the Holy Spirit just to get back at this one book. <laughs> um, but apparently that's worn off. So <laughs> I do need to correct that usage. The Holy Spirit, that is correct. Yes. Okay, we'll go here and there. Hi, my name is Nick, and you don't have to write away, but I'd love to hear more about the enamel coating on this art piece uh, when it's appropriate. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you mean like the uh, the practice of making enamel work? Yeah. I think so. Yes. Yeah, actually. I actually went I went to Cologne, Germany, a few years ago, and I was hoping to see this piece because I knew what museum had it, and I made a beeline for that museum, and it was in storage instead of on display. They had one like it, so I've seen an Albertus enamel piece, uh, but it wasn't the Trinity one. Yeah. And Rolf, how, how old did you say that was? Uh, it's from 1160, I think, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's old. And it hasn't faded like thousand-year-old paintings have because enamel works like, you know, it's like baked on, yeah. Uh, thanks again, Doctor. I, I'm Keith Curtis, and um, I'm the kind of guy that has about 15 questions, so I'll try to keep <laughs> it to two. Um, and one starts really from, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Rohr's book, uh, The Divine Dance. I am. So he talks about it very much in terms of the beauty of the Trinity being in a dance and non-dualistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering what you think about that, especially like what really is the purpose of each individual co-equal parts of the Trinity. And maybe in that question you could address where you see the masculine and feminine divine in the Trinity, because obviously the Father and the Son tends to be a masculine element uh, of God. Where's the mother? Where's the sister? Is that all in the spirit? So that should, you should be able to get that in a yeah. second or two. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously... Let me start with the second question, because um, um, maleness and femaleness as sort of um, um, sexual reproductive realities, and then the masculinity and femininity that kind of uh, emerge from that, those are really elements of creation. Um, and so we don't need to look for sort of where those live in God. God has chosen uh, this gendered masculine language, the father and the son, 
as the best way of describing what is in him. Um, but it, it's, I don't think it's appropriate to be like looking for the feminine. Even if you, or, you know, or the masculine, um, even if you come up with other ways of talking about it, like, like somehow um, men are, mascul- the masculine is like strong and leading and the feminine is uh, beautiful and receiving or something like that. And then you could look for those realities in God. You sort of re-describe them and search for them. Um, it just leads to a lot of projection from our experienced reality as creatures onto God and then searching for where these things we projected in God can be found um, um, in him. So I, I just think that a safer route is to pursue the revealed language. Some people have pointed out um, that the word for spirit is, is uh, grammatically um, a feminine word in Hebrew and in Greek. Um, and for a while, some feminist theologians were very excited about that as if they had found like the feminine in the divine being. Um, but a later generation of feminist theologians said, if we're doing that game, it's still like two guys against one girl, so we're still not winning. Right? <laughs> and so that was kind of a moment of recognition, even for the tradition of feminist theology, to say, like, that is probably not the way forward. Um, Richard Rohr's book, I think, uh, The Divine uh, Dance, it, I can say one good thing about it and the numerous bad things about it. The good thing about it is it kind of is a spur to the imagination to kind of open your mind to the greatness of what's going on in the Trinity. Um, he seems to have written it after kind of a moment of, of awakening to something he had ignored before. Um, but it's got a lot of misleading ideas in it, and he consistently, in that book, claims to be about the Trinity, and on page after page, instead, he wants to write about swirling and dancing and flowing forth and moving and stuff like that. I got nothing against swirling and dancing and flowing forth. I'm not much of a dancer myself, but like, I'm pro all that stuff. But what I really find alarming about that book is that it claims to be about the Trinity, has a picture of the Trinity on the cover, and then is almost entirely not about the Trinity for the rest of the book. So I have a long, detailed review of it at the Gospel Coalition website from a few years ago. Let's do one more, and uh, then we will wrap up for tonight. And uh, when when the Lord, when God poured out the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, yeah, um, there's only one place in the Old Testament that I speak I, that I see about the Holy Spirit, and it's in the Sinner's Prayer, David. Oh, and, I see. Uh, he says in verse eleven, he says, "Do not cast me away from your presence." And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And I know God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how does David have the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'll restate it a little bit um, to make sure everybody followed it. Um, so the name of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we saw it there in Matthew 28, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That adjective, holy, in front of that noun, spirit, is a New Testament phenomenon, right? um, The person of the spirit has been there, obviously, and been mentioned since Genesis 1. The spirit of the Lord was hovering over the surface of the water. But notice it doesn't say the Holy Spirit. It says the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord or spirit of God? Suddenly I can't remember what the divine name is there. But anyway, um, it's either God or the Lord right there. Is it the Lord? Uh, Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, Psalm 51, yeah. So let me get back to the point here. 
the adjective holy in front of the noun spirit is the main New Testament way of picking out and naming this person. But you can't find in the Old Testament, except in three places, you found one of them, Psalm 51, three places where the adjective holy is in front of the noun spirit. Um, It is a prayer of repentance, and it might be better translated, don't take the spirit of your holiness away from me. Why? Because of the context, right? Because David is talking about sin and repentance and having a new heart renewed within him. And it seems like what he's talking about is not so much like whether the third person of the Trinity indwells him, but whether the spirit of God's holiness, uh, you know, is still with him or is being taken away from him. Yeah, yeah. The other place to look, though, is I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah 63. There's a prophecy there. Um, this is Isaiah. You're way down in the, like the, almost the exile part of the Old Testament. God is speaking through Isaiah, looking all the way back to the Exodus and saying, um, they grieved my Holy Spirit. And that's it. You know, ding, ding, ding. That's, that's, the, that's the occurrence where the adjective holy is in front of the noun spirit. And it really is describing God's own presence among his people. And if you, if you heard that phrase, they grieved my Holy Spirit, it might remind you of the command in Ephesians 5, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed. So it really is, it's a, it's a wonderful occurrence of the proper New Testament name of the third person of the Trinity there in Isaiah. It happens twice there, and I think it's, I, I should be able to do chapter and verse on this. It's Isaiah 60 something. 63, 10 and 11? Thank you, Isaiah 63, 10 and 11, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really fond of, of that occurrence of the name Holy Spirit because it's, it's finally there, you know, finally. This is the name that's going to be the main name of this person in the New Testament. And it's there in an important part of uh, the Old Testament that really embraces the whole Old Testament. Like from Exodus to exile, it's God talking about his presence with his people. So I love that passage. But I also love the fact that the Holy Spirit goes by about 16 other names in scripture, right? Um, um, My spirit, the spirit, the spirit of the Lord, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Son, spirit of adoption. Um, We learn something about that person from every single one of those names and from recognizing this is one person, the third person of the Trinity. Exactly as you said, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can we, uh, one more question, Mr. Dan... You get to wrap us up. Hi, my name is Dan. Hey, Dan. Um, I was just wondering, um, when uh, Scripture says that God spoke or God did something, um, I think my default is to imagine that it's the person of the Father uh, is that the right way to think of it, as opposed to because I can think of um, the characteristics of Jesus, the Son, I can think of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit distinctly, but the characteristics of the Father, I just attribute to when Scripture refers to God uh, by that name yeah. alone. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question, and it's kind of similar to the last one, because we're talking about the reality of the divine person, but then we're also talking about the the particular names that he's given us to understand him by. And, And I think what you're picking up on there is the fact that in Scripture, 
most of the time when it names God without making without further describing or distinguishing it, it usually means the first person of the Trinity. Now, this can be a little bit surprising because we know Jesus is God, and so we might have a default of thing like, if it says God, that's also the Son of God, right? Um, well, yes and no. I, I can give you a couple of proof texts that show you that sometimes, often, in fact, when Scripture just says God and doesn't specify further, he's actually picking out the first person, the Father. An easy one is John 3.16. God so loved the world. Is that the Son of God? Actually, it's not, and it can't be, because what's the verse go on to say? God so loved the world, he gave his Son. So the word there is God. The Greek is theos, the word is God. But the meaning of it is, first, to speak anachronistically, the first person of the Trinity. The Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. Um, there are about, I'll just say that's the main rule. Like, if you hit the word God, especially in the New Testament, it's usually talking about the first person of the Trinity. One upside of this is, if you have a lot of concrete thoughts about Jesus Christ the Son because he's incarnate and because of how much we know about him from Scripture, but you don't have very many ideas about the Father, right? The good news is there are a lot of Bible verses about the Father that repay close study and meditation because John 3.16 is about the love of the Father. Um, the other thing that I do want to admit is there are, I think, eight places in the New Testament where the word God, theos, is referred to the Son. So if you're arguing with someone who denies the deity of Christ, for instance, because the word God doesn't go with them very often, there's about eight very important texts. And there's a whole book on this by a guy named Murray Harris about the times that the word God is applied to the Son and means him and defends his divinity. Yeah. All right. Let's thank uh, Dr. Sanders one more time. Well, this is great. I can't think of anything better to do uh, together on a Friday night than to praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him, all creatures here below as we did, uh, praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, to sing and then to think. Um, and to give away stuff, and to have some cookies and milk. So, um, if you have your ticket, I hope you do, you were given one, uh, we want to do a drawing. We're going to do one again Sunday night. Tonight, we're giving uh, the three books at our table. When, when uh, Dr. Sanders and I spoke about the conference and about Crossway's generosity, um, it was pretty easy for him to come up with these three. Again, um, his book, The Deep Things of God, how the Trinity changes everything. I think we kind of heard that tonight. Um, a book on the Trinity called uh, The Trinity and Introduction by Scott Swain. And then uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, The Holy Spirit and Introduction. And I, I got an advanced copy of this. It was kind of fun. Uh, the, the books came in the mail. I, I took a picture and sent it. Or I may have posted it on Twitter. I do very, very little Twitter posting. But I tagged uh, Dr. Sanders and... Uh, it was funny to read some of the comments because I think even one of the publishers said, I don't even have my copy yet. And uh, so I've just been enjoying reading this. One, I mean, already, I love in the back, there's an appendix uh, with, with this title just to whet your appetite, not only to maybe win, but to, uh, to buy it. Rules for thinking well about the Holy Spirit. Just one, two, and I think there's 20-some rules just to think well, to think biblically about the Holy Spirit. Um, it's been rich. Just ending my day the last few nights uh, reading that just brought forth praise to God 
for who he is and, and how to think rightly. Anyway, so here we go. Um, I will flip through these, these tickets, and one lucky person gets all three of these tonight, and the rest of you can go buy them when you have your cookies. Okay, 4026090. Alden? Let's give all, come show me. All right, I can verify this is correct. All right, congratulations, Alden. There you go. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then again, you can talk to Dr. Sanders. You can get some cookies and milk. You can pick up some books. Again, we hope we'll see you Sunday night. Again, 30 minutes earlier, 6.30, and uh, we will hear from Dr. Sanders. We will sing. Uh, We'll have one more drawing, another set of different books. Uh, Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. It has been rewarding to to think and to hear things, things we've maybe heard, maybe some new things, uh, maybe to be reminded of some things, or maybe to have just some new thoughts about you brought to our thinking, brought to our, our, our understanding. Uh, thank you for Dr. Sanders and uh, for bringing him to us and with his wife this weekend. Um, as we head home in the next little while, I pray we would, we would just have hearts of worship for who you are as our, our one God in three persons. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.